Better listen very carefully. A good martial artist does not become tense, but ready. Essentially, at this point, the fight is over. So you pretty much flow with the goal. Who is worthy to be trusted with the secret to limitless power? I'm ready. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another Bulletproof for BJJ podcast. I am JT and I am very honoured today to have the legendary Raspberry 8, aka Dan Strauss, with me. Welcome, Dan. Thank you very much, JT. I just got to say, you're braver than I am. I never do the intro when I'm with someone. I just mess it up about 30 times before I get it right. So I just do it in my bedroom secretly afterwards. Tips from the top. <laughs> no. I guess I can't say I've, I've done as many podcasts as you. You've done way more podcasts than me. I haven't I, even I, hit 100 yet, yeah. Well, that's possibly because your, your podcasts are three hours long. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And now it's a bit shorter. But for those of you out there who are not familiar with our man, Dan, he is the legendary Raspberry Ape here in the UK and worldwide, and also apart from being a, a savage grappler, and uh, it's a, it's a Hodger Gracie black belt, isn't it? That's right, yeah. And and a legendary figure in the, in the world of, of commentating and MMA, also appreciate it. Just all round strong, savage man, and uh, that's how we were able to connect originally. So we're going to be asking many questions today around strength, grappling, history of UK, uh, jujitsu and general views on how to be a better human. So what I wanted to do is I want to go back, Dan. I want sure. to go the origin story of the Raspberry Ape and let people know because there might be some people out there, ignorant people, who don't know who you are. Yep. And, you know, Hard to believe, really, oh, isn't God, it? God. Someone this famous. I mean, really, <laughs> get real people. Get educated. How did it start for you, Dan? How did you start in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? Yeah. And then how did that evolve with you... Because we're, we're actually, I'll give you a bit of context right now, people. We are in the strength cave. The cave, yeah. We're in the legendary Raspberry Ape training zone. Like, yep. if this was Yu Gi Oh!, this is where you would come <laughs> to just get massively strong to go Super Saiyan of massive and well earned internet fame. Every strength implement you could want is here. Like, I, I'm, I'm just absolutely jealous of this space and i'm taking intricate footage of everything so i can replicate it <laughs> in australia mate how did jiu-jitsu start for you and then also let us know a little bit how you evolved your obsession with strength yeah uh yeah thank you very much for for all of that uh, i have to say with the gym with the cave i mean i'm kind of in the same you'd think that I, i'm in here pretty much every single day and it's you know on the outside of my house you think that I'd be bored of it, but I'm not. Every single time I come in, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, this is a really cool place. So, yeah, pretty proud of it. Uh, in terms of how I started in jiu-jitsu, it was kind of as an accident, really. I mean, I was, I was in my teens, my mid-teens, and I was looking around for different martial arts. I think when you hit, when you hit your teens, there's like this, it's quite weird, there's like this innate desire, maybe not for everyone, but I think for a lot of people and for a lot of men especially, or boys in this case, when they start to get into puberty, they sort of have this internal desire to pursue some sort of combat sport and that can take form you know I, if you look at the films or tv shows that teenagers watch and they become obsessed with dragon ball z or you know back in the day power Rangers or stuff like that there's this kind of desire for for martial arts and i think you know the question is is that culturally put on us or is that something that it, we express and culture just picks up on that and runs with it the latter there i think that for me, anyway, there was this desire to want to learn martial arts. So I like knocked about doing loads of different martial arts. My parents never wanted me to do anything violent, which is always ironic uh, when you end up doing that full time. Then my mother had me wrapped up in cotton wool. She wouldn't even let me play any kind yeah. of sports. And then I ended up getting into taekwondo, jujitsu, and then MMA. I, I, I think and that's it kind goes of that way. I think that's kind of what happens though. In that, if your parents are super supportive of you training as a kid, you kind of aren't particularly interested in it. But if they tell you that you can't do it, by the time you get to your mid-teens, when you've got a little bit of independence, that's all you want to do. So anyway, that's what happened with me. And I kind of knocked around doing a load of different martial arts for a while. The one that I stuck with for the longest for about six months or so was a Japanese jiu-jitsu. Okay. Uh, but it was Japanese jiu-jitsu, traditional jiu-jitsu, which is, you know, the only similarity with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is the name. No other similarities there. But one of the instructors there, one of the Japanese Jiu-Jitsu instructors, had 
recently, relatively within the last few years, got into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, okay. was training under Roger, had got his blue belt. And of course, when you train 15 years doing Japanese Jiu-Jitsu and then you discover Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it's like your eyes are awoken. You see the matrix for what it is and then you don't want to do Japanese Jiu-Jitsu the anymore. You just want Exactly. And you want to just do... You just want to do uh, grappling, you know, real proper grappling. And so, so what, what year was this, just for context? This would have been 2005, 2006. Yep. And so, so jiu-jitsu was relatively new in the UK. You know, we hadn't had, we had no British-born black belts at that time. So it was pretty damn new, but we were very lucky that we had some really high-level guys like Roger and Braulio in the country. Um, obviously, Roger hadn't become Roger Gracie of, you know, the greatest of all time fame, but he was still one of the top guys in the world. Yep. I think he'd probably already won Mundials at the time. So I got into Japanese Jiu-Jitsu. One of the instructors had started doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And basically, after about six months of me training there, the other instructor, who was still doing Japanese Jiu-Jitsu, they split. Right. And um, Nick Brooks, who was the guy who'd been doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for a little while, took over and slowly started to turn this Japanese jiu-jitsu gym into a Brazilian jiu-jitsu gym. A lot's happened since then. Unfortunately, lot, uh, end of last year, Nick passed away. I did hear um, that, yeah, tragic. Yeah. You know, which, which, which was very, very sad. But, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of, I see myself as the same gym that I joined. So I kind of, I never, ever joined a Brazilian jiu-jitsu gym because right. when I joined it, it wasn't Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I haven't joined any other since. So, uh, yeah, it kind of, I was in the vicinity of that martial arts world and then I like to think that jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu found me. Amazing. Yeah. The interesting thing for me as well is everybody comes to martial arts in different ways mm. and for some people it's kind of serendipitous, like it's a, a random thing, a friend did it, they joined in or an older brother or whatever or someone, the, the best club of all time just happened to be yeah around the corner from their house or, yeah. you know, stuff like this. The other thing that's very interesting about this, because you are quite the, the figure in the world of strength and, and, yeah. and as a point of reference for all the unathletic jiu-jitsu guys <laughs> out there, because uh, people are like, I'm trying to be like Raspberry 8, but like only at 0.05%, like just, which is cool. Like I always see it on Instagram. Yeah, 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 yeah. There'll be somebody mimicking, seeing you do something. Yeah. But on a much like, but that's what it's all about, right? Oh, it's good. I mean, it's good getting people involved. That's it. That's it. Yeah. And and that's kind of what I. I mean, to, to to answer what I assume your question a bit, like how I got into the strength stuff. Yeah. I mean, very simply put, like I am not naturally athletic in any way, shape, or form. Like that is hard to believe. It is hard to believe. But I'll show you some pictures, some videos from when I first started training jujitsu. I mean, I was a small, skinny kid. That was pretty much my nickname is Skinny. Uh, and um, Who would believe it? I know, absolutely. You got what? No one out there is buying this story. Uh, but I mean, like, that isn't just when I was a kid. That was when I was like quite serious into jiu-jitsu as well. You know, I mean, I competed in ADCC 2011 at 77 kilos. Oh, wow. You know, yeah. so I've competed at 50 kilos in jiu-jitsu. I mean, I was a teenager at the time, yes. but I wasn't 12 which yep. you'd expect a 50-year-old to be, I was 15, 16. So when I competed in ADCC, I was 19 years, uh, I was 20 years old and I was 75 kilos I weighed in. Wow. So, and you know, you're past the, you know, so it, it was a very conscious thing that I had to do in order to actually put on weight and doing ADCC was one of the things that prompted me. Uh, at that point, I was already moderately into strength conditioning stuff. How I got into it originally was... I was 50 kilos and I was training with adults and mm. it sucked yeah. because they, they'll beat the crap out of me. Yeah. Uh, even though I, I was better than some of them, I just get smashed and it's very, very frustrating. So you want to get bigger and stronger. So Nick gave me like this program to do. And then, uh, and then when I was 16, I read Brooks Kubik, Dinosaur Training. Oh, which nice. Was that, that, yeah. was the, that was kind of the, like the pivotal OG moment. Kind of yeah. text, right? That was the Bible and yep. it still is for me. Um, so I read that and absorbed that cover to cover and... Th then I started working out. So I was, went to a gym and started doing all the exercises. And then I think when I started reading the book, I joined a gym or I was already at a gym. And then during the reading of the book, I left the gym. And because in that book, he's talking about, you know, forget about Chrome and Fernland, you know, forget about uh, these commercial gyms. You've got to be a garage gorilla. And that's where this started, <laughs> you know, and, and I bought, I showed you the 2.5 inch uh, barbell over there. Yep. Um, this thick barbell, which are, 16 years old you know i could barely get my hands around 
um, and I had like 90 kilos of weights and I just worked out and I kind of recruited some of my friends from from college to come and work out with me and we just nice. started lifting in the garage. I did that for a little while and I really started to get stronger, which you do when you first started lifting Of course, properly. get those gains. And then uh, I met um, a strength conditioning coach called Andrew Marshall who, who joined, basically, he joined Mill Hill, BJJ, and then they opened a new gym called Mill Hill Combat and Conditioning. So that's when I really got more into the conditioning stuff. And he was kind of like a mentor to me for a number of years until I worked my way up. So we were kind of from mentor to training partners. Um, and yeah, and, and by that point, I was pretty into it. So it really was dinosaur training. That It was, I guess, first the desire to not be so small and weak, Yes, which I was, believe it or not, even though I was a teenager. Um, and then, you know, so that desire to be stronger, which is natural, and one, if you're weaker and two, I think as a teenager anyway, it goes along with that combat yep. thing that you want to be more physical and stronger. And then uh, dinosaur training, which nice. kind of, th that, that was it. I think without dinosaur training, who knows? Right. Who knows what would have happened? Yeah, right. Uh, so that, that was the big moment for me. And I've always preached that and the gospel of that book since then. And, uh, and yeah, that's, that's what it was. I was sort of inspired by old time strongmen and Eugene Sandow and Arthur yep. Saxon and George Hackenschmidt and yep. those guys and, you know, still a big inspiration for me today. Yeah, definitely. And well, I'll be honest right now, I guess, and I, I don't say this with any form of disrespect because obviously there's many young people out there working really hard, mm. but that idea of a young person, man or woman deciding to get into martial arts or combat sports and then having that demand of being overpowered or beaten mm. and then wanting to get stronger. I actually don't think, I believe that this is slightly more old school Yeah, because we assume it's, oh, it's pretty normal. You know, you're a young person, whatever age, go do martial arts. Uh, no, mm. <laughs> it's actually what, I guess what I've observed, it just even just looking at my friend's kids, they're like, no, I want to be a YouTuber. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> Who wants to be an athlete? Oh, you're saying these days they, they, yeah, they don't want to do like, that anymore. Yeah. I feel like, don't get me wrong, maybe for our generation. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I do agree. But then at the same time, it's a really interesting point, actually, because it's almost gone full circle because what are the YouTubers doing now? Oh, yeah. The YouTubers are fighting now, which well, is like, no, no, it's no, crazy, right? So, so it does go back, but I, I, but that's not where it starts. Because the, biggest, start, the yeah. biggest attention for Twitch, YouTube streaming yeah. is gaming. Sure. Yeah. So yeah. there's many people out there who are getting hard in, and obviously esports yeah. and all this. Anyway, I don't mean to digress, but I, I don't want to be, um, I guess I want to speak too presumptuously in saying that, oh yeah, you know, it's that kind of rite of passage, young men getting testosterone and doing martial arts. Mm. I, I actually have seen less and less of that. Mm. For me, it's, it's kind of disappointing because it, it made a huge positive difference yeah. to my life. And I think it can do that for everybody. Yeah. But I spoke to a young man from uh, from a particular part of China, which is right near uh, kind of where the Shaolin Temple is. Mm. And I said to him, oh, you know, like, he was like 17 or whatever. This is a couple of years back. I said, oh, Kung Fu, right? Like, like Bagua. And then he's like, oh, nah, man. I'm in table tennis. Yeah. That's Shaolin Kung Fu. That's old people. Okay. Like yeah, young, yeah. young people like badminton and table tennis. Mm. We don't, we don't, Kung Fu is for like, you know, that was cool 30, 40 years ago. We didn't give it crap about that yeah i was like how interesting i mean this is obviously his opinion yeah but i was like you live in the same city as where like certain legendary kung fu is but that's classic right like if you live somewhere you don't care about it sure. but then when someone comes to see it you know they go oh my god big ben oh my god you know all of these things in london yeah. but if you live in london you don't care about you don't, it it's like it's take it for granted absolutely so i think uh the people who grow up around opportunities don't see them as opportunities because they're not you know, if you're if you're uh if you're drowning in in an exorbitant amount of a resource, you don't see it as a finite uh, it's commodity. Not, it's not special, exactly. Yeah. But then someone comes, you know. If you're if you live by you know, if you live on the beach, you don't care about water. Yeah. But if you live in the desert and you come to the beach, you're like, it's, oh my god, it's this everything. is insane. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I mean, how did it evolve, uh, Dan? Because this is not. <laughs> if we look around us, this is not just some. I think I just have a normal setup. <laughs> I think right? I just have this an obsessive personality. Yeah, I'm the same. I'm the same, and I, I you know, so I'm, I'm happy to be so, <laughs> so stoked to be here because it's something that I've admired from afar for many years. Like, now nah, one day I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go to the Raspberry Ape Strength Cave, and yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna see it for what it is, and it's amazing. How did it? How did we go from? Because yeah. obviously, like. Anyway, not obviously, but I started on my back veranda with my dad's weights. Mm. And the two books that really influenced me was um, Professor Ron Laura's The Matrix System, uh -huh. which was actually about hyperplasia, but 
that was never proven to work in humans, but he had this whole system of half reps, quarter reps. It was ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, actually Lee Lee Priest yes. was one yeah. of the models oh, yeah. in that. And that was him when he was like Jacked. young and yeah, yeah, yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Before the face hat, before the Mike Tyson yeah, face yeah, hat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that book, but then also Arnold's Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding. Like a classic, first, another classic, right? First edition. And I was like 11 mm. or 12, just like, what is this? Mm. How did we go from you working out, you know, obviously with your coach and mentor mm. to now this amazing thing? Like tell me yeah. how it evolved to this and your how you've progressed in your thinking about grip training, yeah, yeah, yeah. strength for BJJ, all of that. Yeah, so I mean it's – I think part of it is I go deep. hard and deep on, on, <laughs> on, on the stuff that I am passionate about, um, which is, and, and, and I'm a collector. Like I like things. I like collecting stuff. Yeah. So those two things combined. And I mean, it doesn't just, there, there really is, there's nothing to collecting grappling. Yeah, right? That's so, right. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but um, there's nothing to, to, you can't, you know, it's all, it's very intrinsic. Whereas uh, working out can be, you know, you've, You've got you your don't toys. need equipment. You can do plenty of stuff with nothing. And I started with nothing. You know, yes. I did. I started um, bench, pe you know, bench pressing off of and lifting with that thick barbell off of cardboard boxes. Right. Literally, like nothing. And I like put. I've got two hooks in the ceiling there yeah. that I used, and and I've got some stirrups. Literally, the stuff that I mean, that stuff's like twelve years old that I would do pull-ups with. I, I put a video up maybe last year of me doing pull-ups on them now and then doing pull-ups when I was like 65 kilos. Yeah, wow. Literally in the exact same spot. Amazing. Um, and, and and it just organically grew and grew because I like collecting things and I like to go. Um, I mean, this is true of everything. I mean, I've got, I've got like a stupid amount of books because um, I like books. Uh, I, when I got injured last year, I, um, I like ra even random things. I got really into like herbal tea. Oh, nice. So I have like, 50 different i have 50 jars of different herbs wow you know that, and i know every single one of them in the same <laughs> way that i could tell you what all of these things are you could i could by sight tell you what every single herb is like i just go in on stuff like that yeah, i don't know why cool. it's just like a a quirk of my personality so that's kind of one of the reasons the grip thing in particular i think is a is a natural progression i mean maybe there was a predisposition for it um, because I am super into it and I have been for a really long time. And, and, and you know. But is that a, a link to BJJ? Yeah, hundred. I, I, I would think so. It's hard to know, yep. uh, but I would think so because there, there's a lot of sports where you think where you don't think that you could benefit from having a better grip, but you could. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of sports where it's very obvious that having a better grip is going to help. And when you're doing jiu-jitsu, especially gi jiu-jitsu, you're like, well, and you're 50 kilos against adults and they're breaking your grips all the time, you're going, I wish I had better grips. So I got a Captains of Crush number one or something and I started training on that. And I remember taking it into college and uh, I was still wasn't, I was probably under 70 kilos at the time. I wasn't a big guy. Um, and I could close this Captains of Crush number one Ooh, yeah. and nobody else could. Yeah. All right. So I'd give it to my, uh, you know, big rugby playing tutor and he wouldn't be able to close it. All the other big guys of the rugby team can close it, but I could close it. It's like, okay, this is Ooh, great. Yeah. Man you know, pride. Absolutely. And, and I kind of, you know, in terms of the actual collection, I had maybe like three grippers and I had a couple of like, you know, fat grips and a few other cheap plastic handles. And I thought, I've got a nice little collection here. I like to display things as well. Okay, if you, Generally, if you like to collect stuff, you yeah. like to display stuff. So sure. All of my books are on display and all of my, like I made like a little cabinet for my herbs and stuff like that. So I like to display stuff as well. And uh, I had this little wooden board, like off cut of something that I found somewhere. And I screwed some holes in and I put my grippers on there and my fat grips on there and everything like that. And it was, a, you know, the first wall of grip. And it was this tiny little thing, probably, I don't know, two feet by one and a half feet. Nice. And then uh, and then I got more stuff and it was one board on the wall. And then it was two boards on the wall. Then it was four and six and eight. And then... And now it's a whole wall. And now it's the entire wall and the <laughs> side and like stuff stacked over there. And yeah. now essentially every square foot of this room is... Is, is, is covered with equipment. Amazing. So it's a long, it, organically growing for a long time. Incredible. Yeah. And so for people out there who are just not familiar because I guess we were kind of riffing before on things because this is, a, a, I guess, a degree of not assumed knowledge, yeah. but if you're into certain products like Iron Mind yeah, or yeah, yeah. even like a journal like Milo or like if you're, in, if you're deep in that world of strength training 
and you go you do go deep because if you start getting into tearing cards, bending nails. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got to do some of that before yeah, you go. Yeah, we will, yeah, yeah, we will. We will. That requires study, research, scouring the internet. Yeah. You know, this is obscure stuff. Yeah, but that's the fun of it. That's cool. That's really cool. That's the fun of it. And that, I mean, I'm I'm in that camp. But if we so if we can unpack that yeah. for people who are listening who are new to maybe strength or have never really done much grip training. Yeah. Um would there be any um, resources or like we'll keep it, we'll refine it, but if you mm. could filter it out like a beginner's, mm. someone's never done grip training, is there like two or three books mm. or re- obviously you have I, your, your I, I mean, you were really setting me up for my, to plug like, my Please, please do because I like. Mean, yeah, there, there, there is, uh, I get a lot of enjoyment out of scouring the internet for obscure information that's lost or rare or is on some little forum that nobody knows or nobody talks about. That's fun for me is to kind of mm. discover things or, you know, I love, you know, connecting with the books. I love getting like hundred year old strength training books Ooh, and yeah. like, what are these guys doing and where are the connection? And um, that, that that's part of the fun. And that's why, um, you can be super into this stuff for years and continue to to, to discover more things. Yeah. And I got a book yesterday. I was like, man, this is awesome. I didn't even yeah. know this. Well, Bob Hoffman, I think it was a, an, an a, a early edition with some really, really cool information in that I can't wait to get stuck into. Uh, in terms of... So like, if we were to break it down into... And it might be too tough. But yeah, no, but like a no, top, no, if you wanna, top three or a top five so of resources. Yeah. So and feel free to include your own. Yeah, 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 sure. So... Um, I enjoy going deep into these obscure things, but of course, a lot of people don't have a huge amount of time or don't have a desire to do that. They just want the they want the bullet points. They want to get the information. So, you know, there there are some good resources out there um, in terms of grip training. Lots of people put things out. Some of the ones that I looked at is like Jed Johnson, yep. uh, Diesel Crew, and the Grip Diesel. Authority back in the day. Um, he's still got a lot of good videos and stuff out there. John Brookfield. John Brookfield. Uh, that's, that's the that's legend the, there. I can't that's be forgetting the original. About. Yeah, exactly. They're o- really one of the OGs of grip strength who inspired a lot of the training that I do. Even the training that I do have done this week, I've done some exercises that I first saw from him. So John Brookfield is a great resource, books and videos. Um, you know, the, the instruction that I released a couple of years ago, was kind of made with your question that you've asked in mind, which is there's a lot of information out there. How can I make it into a concise product for people who have no interest in spending hours scouring the darkest depths of the internet for information or going back and finding 90 year old books to to find information from. So that was the instructional was about is trying to format all of that information in a concise way as possible. I'll be completely transparent. I have that, (laughs) you know, I downloaded it full credit to you. Because uh, I'm always yeah. interested to see, as much as happy to support yeah. you and the good work you do. Appreciate just it. interested to see, yeah. y- you know, your take on things. And I actually think it's great because it's very complete. Because mm. you talk about things slightly broader than just yes. getting stronger. You're looking at care and yeah, I'm, I mean, this other components. And, and and this is a really important concept. I mean, grip strength is special. It's special for a number of reasons and not just to do with performance. I mean, if we do talk about before, if, if someone doesn't care about anything else, they don't care about having health, you know, health or longevity and stuff like that. Well, actually, if you want high performance, you need health. Yes. I think it was Hackenschmidt that said something I'll be paraphrasing, but something along the lines of strength cannot be devoid of health. You know, these two things are connected and it's very true for grip strength. If you have issues, if you have tendonitis or if you have tightness or if you have arthritis caused by, you know, not looking after yourself, then your performance will suffer. So in order to be as strong as possible in the hands and wrists and forearms, you need to be healthy in the fingers, hands, wrists and forearms. That's a massive part of it. But then grip kind of is unique in the, especially at the moment, a lot of information coming out about how grip strength correlates to other lifestyle factors, like all-cause mortality is is directly correlated to um, grip strength. And of course, correlation doesn't equal causation. That doesn't mean that if you train your grip, then you'll live longer, but there's some... If if you've got a Captain's of Crush 3, but you're puffing cigarettes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) Doesn't fit. So so there's more research, but then it's quite interesting and it may just be healthier people have better grip strength. You know, you can use grip strength to test your nervous system function. So there's like a classic method. I mean, there's more high-tech ways of doing it now like heart rate variability and you know sleep and readiness and stuff like that that you can use on these electronic 
trackers. Um, but an old school way of doing it would be you'd get like a grip dynamometer, which I have yes. over there. And um, every morning you test yourself yeah. and you get a baseline of what your, your grip strength is. Actually, I'm going to just quickly jump yeah. in on that. Good friend of mine, James Ross, shout out the Richmond gym. He told me about a protocol that they do at the NFL mm. and they have an A workout and a B workout. Yeah. And the two tests they must pass is maximal grip strength and vertical jump. Yeah. And if they don't match or beat, then that says their nervous system is under-recovered and they are not allowed to do their A workout. Yeah. They actually have to do an easier workout so that they're recovered. And he had always said to me, the first thing that shows like a, a like a neural fatigue or like under recovery yep. is grip strength. Exactly. And so it's so crucial. I think people probably underestimate it. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's exactly it's spot on. You can get a baseline for your grip dynamometer test. And then if you wake up in the morning and it's dropped a certain percentage below, you know that you're under recovered. So you can mitigate your training or you can adapt your training to give yourself the best chance of recovery. And then other stuff, you know, there's been studies recently about grip strength being correlated to number of sexual partners and, and in men and uh, age of losing their virginity, which is like, I mean, not that what? this, yeah. I mean, it's just interesting stuff. And so I'm is sure that saying if your testosterone kicks in earlier, you stronger grip? Again, something, something? It, who knows how that correlates or <laughs> how, the direction that the causation goes, but that's the correlation is that a higher grip strength equals essentially a higher. Now, does that mean if you have a strong grip, you'll get laid more? May, or does it mean that people who, who naturally have more testosterone, maybe, maybe. who are going to naturally get laid more are going to also naturally have a stronger grip strength? Do they also have really big hands? Really like, interesting. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe it's a lot more simple, but there's just loads of and, and there'll be more. There'll be more coming mm. out. And it's just so interesting to see the huge number of different elements that all correlate back to grip strength. But, you know, really for most people who are going to be listening, who are interested in performance, be it in any sport, but especially in jiu-jitsu or MMA, grappling, whatever, people think grip is hands. Yes. That, that it's the most obvious expression of grip, but there's many different shit Because of the insane number of joints and bones and, and different articulations that the fingers, hands, thumb, wrist and elbow make, what I consider grip is a lot, of, as you'll know from the instructional, there's a lot of different positions. It's you know, broad. So, exactly. So like people who don't think that grip is relevant in nogi because you don't really grab onto anything. Yeah, but you need to be hooking with your hand and able to create tension. And that is all to do with forearm strength. And uh, this is all stuff that's also correlated to the grip. So it's just really, really important. And it's fun as well. I mean, when you see that there's, because of the num crazy number of different types of grip strength, be it closed hand support, open hand support, crush, pinch, uh, you know, wrist flexion, wrist extension, deviation, because of the different number of grip training styles and the number of different articulations that the hand, wrist, thumb can do, you can do get so many different pieces of equipment. Definitely. So and you can train I, in different ways. Actually, a book I had many years ago, unfortunately, I, it, um, it got uh, lost in the mix, but it was just called Training for Rock Climbing. Uh-huh. But it honestly... Yeah. It was the most comprehensive wow. grip and total body training uh, book I've ever seen. Mm. And it talked about like one-eighth crimp, mm. quarter crimp, mm. half crimp. And you had to train all these different finger and hand positions. Yeah, I was like, what? It was so detailed. Yeah. Like, okay, you need to train quarter crimp, this many reps, this many sets, time under tension. I was like, wow, like this guy had gone so scientific mm. it was very impressive i'm sad to have lost it climbing's a great so the climbing's a great example of like there's sports where it's not obvious that you need grip there's sports where it is obvious like grappling and then there's sports where it's obvious that nothing else matters like yeah. this is the most important the thing the life is in your hands i mean it's if you're you see these crazy people like alex holland and stuff doing oh. free soloing and uh if your grip strength isn't there, you'll literally die. And many, many people have done that. So yeah, climbers, even more than grapplers, gi or no gi, those guys know how important grip is. Definitely. And I, I guess this is where we can we can segue into a, a, a passion of yours, Dan, or yep. an interest. Because I was very lucky just before lockdown, a good friend of ours, uh, Hannah, was able to connect me with, yes. with Dan. And he was in Australia. He was doing some seminars and hanging out. Yep. And so we were able to go and do a bit of a, like a training jam and kind of chat and we were just kind of throwing ideas back and forth. And that's when I, I you know, obviously we all have different uh, ideas, but I thought it was a, an interesting insight. And I had said that I believed the people with the greatest grip were rock climbers. Yes. Like I said, it's a nuanced yeah, 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 idea yeah. here. And then you had kind of said, oh yeah, like, yes, 
but you had said that you believe the people with the strongest arms yep and we're, we're going beyond the hand and connected exactly, to you, yeah. is arm wrestlers. Yeah, exactly. And then you started breaking down some some techniques and exercises that you've drawn from the world of arm wrestling. Yeah. Can you speak on that? For me, the grip is sort of everything from the shoulder down. Yeah. So like bicep, elbow, forearm, thumb, fingers, wrist, everything. And different sports um, that really lean in, that are really high emphasis on grip, very few of them will be everything. I mean... You have grip as a sport itself, which we'll talk about in a second. But yeah, you have you have rock climbers where it comes to finger strength, tendon strength, isometric strength in the fingers and hand, unbeatable. And pound for pound, just insane. You see these guys doing literally not one-handed pull-ups, but a single finger pull-ups, pinky finger, muscle-ups. I mean, just insane stuff. It really is ridiculous. And if you don't believe it, if that sounds like hyperbole, go, go look it up. It's, it's insane, yeah. Yep. Um, but then arm wrestlers who just have incredible strength throughout the entire arm. I mean, I mean, it is arm wrestling. It's literally in the name. And a lot of my equipment comes from arm wrestling, a lot of my um, training, because I think sort of the gi-no-gi divide mm. is really is is really telling here, which is the demands of your grip as it pertains to the gi is more to do with the hand and fingers. Mm. Whereas the demands as it pertains to no gi is more to do with the wrist. Mm. As someone who doesn't train gi, um, I used to, and I used to do more climbing sort of stuff. And then as I stopped, when I stopped training gi and I just do exclusively no gi, a lot of my training is more to do training that wrist inflection, be it hooking, what I call hooking, which is a 90 degree angle at the wrist, what I call cupping, which is a 90 degree angle at the base knuckles and supination and pronation, everything around that. And then you have grip sports as a separate sport and, um, and, and different parts of grip sport, be it nail bending, which is like an awesome, uh, especially nail, um, long still snapping. Oof. I mean, like that sounds you, like a great band name. Yeah, long still, long snapping. still snapping. It does sound like a good <laughs> band name. Uh, but you have short still bending, short still snap. So like, you get a nail and you you bend a nail once. You're short still bending, uh, and then you have snapping, which is you bend it, then you unbend it, and then bend you it and unbend it. And you keep on doing it, and it basically, it, it it's it's really fun i mean bending a nail have you ever bent a nail i think i've actually never okay, bent we're gonna a nail do, we're, gonna do, we're gonna try to do one later today but i remember the I, first I, I have i've kind of it's something i've always wanted to do we'll do it today for nice, sure i've got some nice. nails here but i remember it's quite funny i remember the first time i ever bent a nail i had like just like five or six inch nails that i got from b&q like a hardware store here and um i think i don't know if i actually had the proper wraps um or i might have just used like a dishcloth and I came home and I was in the kitchen and I wrapped this thing up and I was just like sweating and like <laughs> straining and I'd like the technique was all wrong. And but 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 I got this thing to bend and the feeling of making something that was made by humans to be strong. Yeah. And destroying it with your I bare hands yeah. is Awesome. awesome it's a <laughs> it's, it, it's sort of similar to stone lifting like natural stone lifting, yeah. which is like this has been made by the earth to be heavy yes. to not move and i can move it with I've, my strength you know I've overcome it yeah absolutely so the first time i think it you know if you're gonna get bit by the bug of nail bending that's where you feel it that first bend as it goes uh and then the next part is the snap in it which is equally cool which is taking something that is not meant to be even bent and bending it back and, and the way that actually works is you change the molecular structure because yeah. the the movement it doesn't want to move, so you start to it, it emits heat, yes. you know, and uh, it gets really really hot, and then it becomes kind of more plastic, and then it just snaps, and then you you're breaking hard. molecules uh, apart. Absolutely, so <laughs> that feels awesome as well. And then you've got the more hardcore, but you can you could snap a nail. Um, we'll, we'll probably snap some nails today. You can snap a nail in maybe like four, five, six hits if they're big hits. So that might take you like. 30 seconds if you go oh, quite wow. fast or a minute like it can be really quick uh but then you have long steel snapping or braced bending so that would be a much longer piece maybe uh 10 11 12 13 14 inches and you know you can go up to really really far and you may bend it on the leg and then crush in between the legs and then open it out on your side mm. and um it's harder the bend but then the snapping man you're talking 10 15 20 minutes wow. 25 minutes 30, and, and, and that's a workout it's a whole workout in itself and sometimes that's what i do as a workout i haven't been a huge amount uh, since my injury I, I did it um maybe a couple of months ago i did some long still snapping 
And I was like, man, I forgot how hard a workout is. There's no other exercise that I've ever done that feels so much like I've been in a grappling match, <laughs> which is weird because it's not it's like even full body. You but versus like steel. Your leg crushing and like your glutes are hurt and your back sore, like your arms are working, your grip is like pumped up like it would be in a grappling match. And if you're fighting something and it doesn't yeah. want to bend, then you've got to bend it. And <laughs> Super match. This reminds me, I had a, a Beavis and Butthead book back in the <laughs> day and they would be like lawnmower versus... Thigh master. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Beavis and Butthead give their fight breakdown, (laughs) like a a fight companion of who could win and why they'd win. Yeah. And I could just see super fight, Dan Strauss versus... A nail. (laughs) (laughs) You know, six mil gauge steel. Yeah. Mate. But like horseshoes as well, really fun. Ah, yes. Horseshoes are fun. Well, I was going to say my first experience ever, and this is where I was quite young, because when I first came to lifting, it was all bodybuilding. Yeah. It's like, how can I just get jacked? And then there was a change in me when I was trying to be more competitive in Taekwondo where it became more about strength yeah. and power and speed and less about putting on muscle. But I saw the first clip of that first ever World's Strongest Man. Yes. And Lou Ferrigno is bending. They're doing long still. Yeah. yeah over on, his head. On his head. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. I mean, Lou Ferrigno was a massive human. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I looked at that and I was like, oh. Yeah. My neck, like. I mean, the, the irony of that is, I mean, you know, just talking about Strongman for a second, like the good days of Strongman, where, where yeah. they didn't know what they'd be doing. It's great. You know, nowadays, look, Strongman's great, but it's Atlas Stones, Log Press, Deadlift. Yeah. It's you control. Know, uh, some Farmer's Walks or something. There's no um, Bill Kazmaier. Before, like before it was like sumo, sumo wrestling. arm wrestling, uh, <laughs> ne- ne- steel bending. And like, and I think one of the reasons why they got like, these guys would wreck themselves because they have hurt. no technique at all. Mm-hmm. Like arm wrestling, uh, oh, it was in a very famous clip where yeah, dude he, breaks he got his, his arm. arm broken. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. Uh, the guy, I think it was actually the guy who is it John who, Paul Sigmundson. Yeah, he he was an arm wrestler and he broke the. I think it was Nathan Jones, right, who played Boagrius in Troy and right. also fought in Pride. Did you know he that? Fight yeah, in yeah, 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 I did yeah, not know. Pride. He yeah, yeah, yeah. Fight in Pride. I mean, the That's guy had a good life. There you go. Um, Nathan Jones, I think his name was good. Good memory for me. Um, but yeah, snapping their arms Jesus. or you know. Kazmaier getting psyched up for the sumo wrestling and the other guy just running out of the ring. (laughs) uh, But yeah, they did that still better. I think it wrecked a few people because the the steel probably wasn't particularly hard if you'd done it like a, that that length of steel, the most effective way to do it would be on the leg or you'd lace it through your legs and then you'd use this rotation to, to bend it. But uh, I mean, it's probably a hard bit of steel anyway. Those guys are strong, but (laughs) that would be poison. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. I like those, those old school feats of strength, you know, the, um, Card tearing, the nail bending, the horseshoe bending. Yeah. I think an interesting thing about sort of that golden age of strongmen as well was that a lot of them were wrestlers as well. Yeah. So that was strength training and wrestling and, and the combination between the two. And we were kind of talking about it, how culturally it was lost from Brazilian jiu-jitsu. It, it wasn't lost. It was purposefully removed. Slightly separated, yeah. Purposefully. But, but that's the interesting thing. And it, and it was artificially removed where strength training has always been deeply connected to martial arts. Yes. Um, all martial arts, be it karate. You know, I've got a book upstairs talking about all of the cool strength equipment that they make. I've got like a like a wooden stick in a concrete pot there. You know, like these yeah. things that they'd use in, in, in karate and they'd lift things and they'd train things and they'd do loads of body weight stuff. Judo would be the same. Loads of strength and conditioning work. Wrestling, loads of strength and conditioning stuff. And then jiu-jitsu, because a massive part of Brazilian jiu-jitsu was the development of this new martial art, quote unquote, that was for small people against big people, right. where they artificially created this culture saying that you, and of course it is true to a degree, sort of. the smaller skilled fighter can defeat the bigger, less skilled fighter, but the- If the big strong guy, the big, strong guy also knows also knows So it, that principle only works when you are fighting someone who doesn't know what you're doing which is what they were doing to begin with. It's a marketing tactic, essentially. Yeah, the idea that you shouldn't do strength and conditioning if you do jiu-jitsu was a market employed by the Gracies to sell, to sell Gracie jiu-jitsu. Yeah. Look at Hickson. He was, at, he was in great shape. Mate, right? amazing. I mean, they, they, sent, they sent their non-best representative in. Hoist Gracie <laughs> was not the best representative in jiu-jitsu because he was the skinniest, smallest guy because if they sent Hickson in, who looked fantastic and was amazing. doing loads of strength and conditioning stuff, 
Um, I mean, be it yoga or body weight stuff or gymnastica yep. natural or, you know, but he was pulling, you know, we, we, we all remember watching Choke and the band around the head and doing, pulling you know, the he car. was in great nick. So, uh, yeah, it was artificially changed. And then, you know, we were talking about it earlier. Since then, you kind of have to go around and be like, okay, well, it's different times. You've got to understand that actually doing some form of strength and condition is going to help you. I think the a mistake here, and this is kind of like a little beef of mine, but whatever. I don't have a judgment on steroids in terms of if people want to take steroids, they can. Whatever. That's cool. Whatever. Do you think? But if you're in a competition that says it is illegal to take steroids mm. and people all take steroids, mm. but only one person gets popped like a, you know, like say, let's say Lance Armstrong, for example. Yeah. Everyone's like, oh, Lance Armstrong. But we all know that doping has been the biggest part of the Tour de France for, I mean, forever, I right? I mean, the Lance Armstrong thing is probably a bad example because so many people get popped in. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm France. saying the funny thing about that is people are like, oh, I couldn't believe it. But but that was just, I, the Lance Armstrong was because he adamantly denied it. Of course. I was like, it, I think the Lance Armstrong thing is almost unique, is, is definitely unique. No, the French hate Lance yeah. because he was totally... But also, he was, suing, he was suing newspapers for saying that he was on steroids. I didn't know that. Like, but, and, and that was like the big thing. When he confessed it, it yeah. was like a massive thing. I'm like, oh shit, he has set himself up for lots of lawsuits. Yeah, but I think it was also just... And he was gunning people and like he was buying people off. He was gut, like destroying people's careers if they said anything Look, about I'm it. I'm not saying that Lance Armstrong is a good guy. <laughs> Let, let's not get this out of context. Inspiration. But, but No, no, no. But I was like, I, I admired Lance. I read his first book because I was like, wow, this guy's an animal. And he is an animal. And he is an inspiration. You like every single person in the Tour de France is on steroids. Every single one. Everyone. You can't do it otherwise. Yes, right. <laughs> you, can't, you can't ride for six hours up, you know. The, the or an EPO or whatever. Like, yeah, yeah or, or through the roof. And look, to be honest, if you, you're in jiu-jitsu and you're trying to get fit, EPO is fantastic. <laughs> but <laughs> I do not recommend doping. But this is what I was going to say. The thing that bothers me yeah. or galls me is that a, like in other sports, if you get popped for drugs, you know, you might get a lifetime ban or yeah. six years. You lose your athletic career. If you're Philippe Penner, <laughs> yeah. you know, you, you get or, or Kynan, Kynan Duarte, yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah. you're out for 12 months. Oh, I guess I'll go do some non-tested events. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And then they're back. And so this is the thing for me. When I look at it, the difficulty is there's many people who are just doing jiu-jitsu and maybe they're smoking a bit of weed. Yeah. They're having their acai. They're very much in the jiu-jitsu lifestyle yeah and then you know you've got a guy like gordon ryan yeah who hasn't been able to digest food correctly for six or eight years but he's like 110 kilos of solid muscle yeah. and and and, it, <laughs> and he's selling dvds on mindset yeah you're like what and they're like oh i got gordon ryan's mindset dvd you know i'll be a champion like him one day you're yeah. like guys this is a myth the amount of drugs in jiu-jitsu mm. is next level and the reason why i say this guys is People are not just taking steroids for recovery. They're trying to be strong. Yeah. You know, these guys are lifting. They have strength coaches. Like the very top guys are trying to be as, as fit and as strong as possible. Yeah. And this myth of the pure jiu-jitsu guy has somehow pervaded the culture. And I just find that it's a total, uh, like a cognitive dissonance mm. between the elite in the sport and what's kind of peddled in the, in the modern age. Yeah, I think, I mean, st steroids in BJJ... And I'm not saying that because I condone steroids. Yeah, I'm yeah, just yeah. saying there it, seems to be this gap. It's a really interesting topic because, I mean, it's a huge problem, but then it isn't, like, nobody really pays attention to it because there's no main governing body for jiu-jitsu. There's no, I mean... Well, the IBJJF kind of forms that, yeah, right? Yeah, but it, but it isn't because you can compete outside of IBJJF. And like they don't, you're not under contract with IBJJF. Like, but you IBJJF can't be a world champion if you don't win the you IBJJF. Competition. Yeah, but you could do. But like, you're, what I'm saying is, okay, the best example, people don't give the UFC credit because they have the greatest drugs program in the world in terms of anti drugs. Sure. The USADA program with the UFC is the most comprehensive, it is a but gold standard. But yeah. has that made the UFC better? I mean, <laughs> wasn't pride better? Weren't the fighters well, better it. when I mean, they were I mean, juiced? I mean, yeah. I mean, we create another, Vitor, we create another Mandalay. That's what, it, but like, that's what ADCC is. I'm oh, not. I know. It's like, a, it's a freak that, show, and that's what pride was. It was like, here is a here is an organization where we won't test you. Take whatever you want. 
We want you the biggest, baddest, strongest, strongest most ripped monster that can fucking go all day, <laughs> you know? And uh, that is what ADCC is, unfortunately. Correct. Um, which is by not... I mean, the IBJJF have started testing, so there's a possibility. Will that stop some people? No, but, you know, it, 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 it will change the behavior of a lot of people considering doing IBJJF because there's that fact, you know, for many years it wasn't. But you're never going to be able to clean up the sport. You... you there isn't enough money in jiu-jitsu to, to have an organization yeah. where you can be under contract year-round. I mean, USADA have, like, the testing for USADA is crazy. Yeah. They, every single athlete contracted under the UFC is on a USADA app. Do you know this? Uh, I have a small understanding yeah. from what John Jones went through yeah, yeah, yeah. and how hardcore yep. he hid yeah, like what he had to do to avoid them. Yep. So I don't fully, but so please so they, paint the picture. They have an app and you have to basically have, you sort of know where you are every minute of the day, the entire year. Like whilst you're at like three, six, five, at any point, you sort of know where they are, where you are so they can come and test you. Mm -hmm. Out of the blue. They don't have to tell you. They just show up and you've got to supply a sample there and then or you're, it's, it's basically like you popped. So like, um, uh, who was moaning the other day? Someone was moaning the other day because uh, Usman yeah. was moaning because they came at five in the morning and they tested him. Yeah. Well, fucking come at eight in the morning. Come on, yeah. give me a break. Um, uh, Volkanovski, they yeah. tested him at like five in the morning, the day of his weigh-ins. Oh, that's a bit. That's fucked up, right? Yeah. But, and they can literally pop up anywhere. You can, if, you, if you go out of town, you, you want to go to the beach for a day. Tell you, you have to tell USADA that you're going to the beach for the day. If they wanted to find you, this is where you're going to be. Wow. It's very, very comprehensive. It is very, very, like, is it impossible to take drugs in the UFC? No. Especially like, we don't know what is at the forefront of designer. That you can't you know, find right now. you can't find them. I know that um, sometimes they, there's certain drugs where they'll actually search for, um, they'll search for traces of a syringe in you. Ah. Right? So they'll start using like glass syringes or ah. like pla like some, something like that or whatever where they actually change the equipment that they use, you know, stuff like that. So there'll always be ways to get around it. But to my knowledge, there is no there is no sport in the world, there is no organization in the world that has as good an anti-drug policy as the UFC. Well, they just got so much money, bro. <laughs> but, 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 you know. but like they don't have to do that. Like you got, I, I mean, a lot of people share the UFC. Like the UFC did not have to do that. They could have just gone, we'll have the money. We'll keep test. I mean, they used to test people. I mean, Josh Barnett. I love Josh. Yep. I know Josh personally. Legend, legend. I love him. He's been part of the series a lot of times. Yeah. When he was in the UFC. The first time, they gave him a warning. <laughs> they wanted like, and like find him. And then the second time it was like, okay, you can't compete for six months. And it was like, okay, you can't compete for, you know, the, yeah. the, they, people were getting busted. They were getting slaps on the wrist. They were getting a six month ban, which yeah. they take off after a fight anyway yeah. um and then it wasn't until like they decided we are going to become an example of professionalism but and for me i look at that and i don't i don't care because i see the ufc as being exploitative of fighters so they have all the money yeah. they have all the power the fighters get fuck all yeah I and, mean, they, look, and, and, and what they it, don't have they don't have it in their budget 1.5 million to yeah. test people like look dan i know that you're angling for <laughs> a commentating <laughs> career Absolutely with the UFC not. so don't worry I'm not going to catch you slagging them out but I'm going to say right now fuck the UFC because I don't care Look, the UFC because they <laughs> exploit fighters like even I, the I, best <laughs> of all time make not even 10% of what a, a mid to high level boxer makes sure Do you, like honestly let's I mean, talk about Canelo versus like what Canelo makes versus say like a Izzy now, yeah, Izzy yeah. is definitely top tier to make money, yeah. but Canelo would make a hundred million and Izzy would make the UFC is two or yeah, five yeah. million, the, right? The, the, so UFC, the UFC is not perfect, but we were just talking about drug policy. That's all I'm talking about. But you're just... Uh, anyway, uh, all, uh, JT hates the UFC so much that he won't even let me praise their anti-drug policy. No, fuck those guys. <laughs> They've got a really good anti-drug policy. Yeah, but they don't pay their fighters enough. <laughs> um, yeah, let's not get into that. Look, I agree with you. There's a lot of stuff that UFC don't do right, but the one thing that they have nailed... Drug testing. They have the best drug testing in the world. So okay. we're just talking about, because you were asking that about, about okay, yeah, IBJJF, uh, about, about jiu-jitsu and the drug problem in jiu-jitsu. Yeah, it's a problem. Um... And I, I mean, I, I do work with the UK BJJA. Cool. 
I'm actually on the board. That's the UK Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Association. They recently became the kind of the official governing body and nice. supported by Sport England. And uh, we were talking at one of the recent um, board meetings about, uh, you know, bringing in drug testing in 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 for UK BJA members. And it's tough. And they were talking a lot about education as well, which is actually a big part of it. And I think when you're talking about Brazilians, it's culturally very different steroids yes. out there. You can go into a... It's uh, much easier to get steroids go in Brazil from a doctor than yeah. you could say if you were just here in the UK. Just yeah, and, and, and they just don't see it in the same way. You know, um, the, 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 for a Brazilian to take steroids is not massively dissimilar to someone in a more conservative country who like was on creatine and protein powder. No. I mean, it's like a meme, but like... Like I'm on creatine, but it, it is really like it out there. And I remember when I was out there in 2008 and people would be like, oh man, you know, you know, we just take some bomba and you know, you'll be yeah. okay. And it's like, wow, like it's a really different culture. It's like in Thailand. Yeah. I was in Thailand and uh, um, I went into a pharmacy to get some like uh, skin cream. And there's a guy just in front of me, like I'll have some uh, nandrolone <laughs> and some testosterone and this big fucking dude in front of me. And he's just literally just like big pile of, of steroids there and, Money away you go. go, mate. Well, actually, what easy. Blew me no, away. No, no, no prescription. Wow. You walk in there. Wow. You go. I'll have uh, three vials of testosterone. Three vials of. of wow. Just like that. Yeah. Well, the thing that blew me away when I was in Brazil was I knew a girl who was not an athlete. Yeah. She was on growth hormone. Yeah. To lean out for summer. Yeah. Brazil, Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. that was Brazil's interest. Have you been in Brazil? Mate, I lived in Brazil, so yeah. I was okay. I, so you know, I've been there a bit. The, 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 the Brazil have uh, like, especially where did you live? I was Rio? in Sao Paulo predominantly, okay. but I was in Rio too. So I, I've only been to Brazil once. I went there for a month, but you know, you spend some time out there and you start to learn a bit about the culture and you keep an sure. eye out. But it's amazing. Um, it like they're very superficial about yeah. their looks. Yes. It's all about the like tanned. The guys are jacked. The women have the big tits, big ass, skinny waist, and Tats. yeah, uh, tattoos, big tattoos on the guys. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, it, it, it just culturally, you don't have to be... I mean, the majority of people who take steroids aren't athletes. No. The majority True. of people who take steroids are not athletes. They're, 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 they're people who just want to look better. Yeah. That's the reality. Yeah, yeah 100%. Yeah. No, I'm with you. That, that That's not Brazil. That's everywhere. No, that's, that's no, no, yeah. for the best part. Yeah, and yeah. there's plenty of guys out there who, who are cycling on to who knows what. And and, and, and you can for say... For festivals, yeah, right? And yeah, yeah, 100%. Or for anything. Um, you can make an argument that it's more ethical, you know, because if someone's just taking steroids to look better... Um, it doesn't affect anyone's career. It doesn't affect anyone else in competition. You know, taking it, taking steroids in MMA is, is actually should be seen as morally more reprehensible yeah. than taking steroids in a bodybuilding show, taking steroids in grappling, where you could possibly hurt someone, but you're but unlikely you to really hurt someone. Somebody. But in MMA, yeah. where you're actually punching or boxing. Taking steroids is a big problem because yeah. you're actually take you're you're becoming stronger to inflict actual damage and harm upon another person. Yeah. So. and I mean, unless you're Canelo, because then you're like, oh, I had the wrong, I had Mexican beef, and it, there was trace elements, yeah. and uh, oh, okay, yeah. oh, you just that's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, everyone goes with that, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> Yo Romero. Oh, like he's on steroids, and, and 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 we were like, uh, well, obviously, obviously he's from C and then, Cuba, but as then, well. but then. Who have he got? Cuba. He got vindicated. He did, and he made more money on that lawsuit than he made fighting. Yeah, it. but the lawsuit was thirty million. So yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's I mean, he didn't get thirty million from it. I think well, he got twenty-one million. Did he, he got, get that? He got much? a good chunk of that because you think that a thirty million, the supplement company would just go, okay, we're bankrupt. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're just going to shop. They're but. gone. But I mean, uh, you could look at like because I mean, Cuba. A lot of athletes have been popped for steroids in the past. And Yo Romero came in because there's some arguments to say. And just side yeah. note, we'll get off the steroids thing, guys. <laughs> Sorry about this. But that once you take certain things that affect your androgen, yeah. androgen receptors, that cellularly you are changed permanently. Henceforth. Yeah. So it is actually easier for you to sure, then get sure. certain protein synthesis and things yeah, like that. Yeah. So, you know, anyway, yeah. I want to I segue right now because yeah, people, there, people, there, people are getting bored because they're like, the yeah, the steroids, steroids yeah. whatever. Okay, mate, let's talk injuries because this, okay. is, this yeah. I find this fascinating because I, I feel like I've learned the most from my injuries. Yeah, and obviously you've had a more recent one, which I, I I would like you to talk about. Yeah, but what is I find impressive? Yeah, because many people get injured and then they're like, oh, that's my bad knee. Yeah, oh, I've got a bad back. I'm done. Now, 
please, you know, obviously, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, correct me on the details. But if I'm, I've if had I, surgery on both shoulders, so I can't have a bad knee, <laughs> a bad shoulder, or bad. <laughs> and neither of them are bad. <laughs> Look at Dan's shoulders; they're both fine. <laughs> They're evenly good. The scars just make him look tougher. I was so um, disappointed. I had uh, so basically on my right shoulder, I had uh, um, like keyhole. So my yeah keyhole. Um, I had a labrum uh, reattachment. So I that was from I had that before my match with AJ. Ah, um, so like my shoulders fucked then. Yeah. Like I couldn't. The, the AJ match is funny. Obviously, that the, the AJ match is the one that like. Everyone when they meet was like, "Man, I saw you." Everybody man. loves that because AJ's such a dick, yeah, and you're yeah, such yeah. a good fella. And uh, <laughs> and I mean, I kind of was like, people thought I was a dick after that match, but it was just uh, people wanted to see AJ get it kind Smashed. of thrown back him, yeah. Uh, but everyone, that's ninety percent of people when they meet me. Oh yeah, I saw I, I saw you from the AJ match. Uh, I w- my shoulder was fucked for like six months before that. I could barely train. I mean, my training partners were so worried about me, but I'd already pulled out of. Um, the first Polaris. Mm. Uh, so I, I was meant to do the first Polaris against AJ. I did the ADCC trials and I popped my knee at ADCC trials. So I was out of that one. He fought Oli Geddes, a friend of mine. And then they offered me again on the second one. And I thought if I pull out of this one because of my shoulder, I'm not getting on the show. And it was, you know, this big Polaris was a massive thing. And there was nothing like it in the UK. Yeah. Really, and against like, they were bringing in guys, like high level guys from America. AJ was a world champion. So I was like, I've got to do this. I've got if you've got to wheel me on there in a sling, I've got to do this match. And my training partners were super worried about me because I could not roll. Basically, the symptom that I was getting from this labrum tear was basically when I started working my shoulder, after about five minutes, it would essentially like switch off. Oh. So it would just go dead. Oh, and like Jesus. I couldn't lift it, I couldn't move it. So a lot of my training, like my hands and my belt, and I'm Dang. just training like that. I got pretty good at tra- uh, grappling with one hand, uh, but it wasn't ideal. And it was a 15 minute match. I could not roll for more than five minutes at a time. Every session I do, I'd like go home sulking because it was like shit. I couldn't train properly, but um, I got just like loads of massage in it in the week leading up to it, and the adrenaline kicks in, and you're just good to go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but a few months after that, eventually, after some months of, of rehab and nothing happening, I got it scanned. It was torn, and I had the surgery. But I, I've got these tiny little keyhole scars, and I thought I have this big surgery, and I get these tiny little scars. <laughs> nothing to show. So at least with my pec injury, he was like, "It's open." I'm like, "Yes, yes. we're gonna get a proper scar." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's all good to go. Yeah, so the, the labrum tear, I mean, I had that, that was maybe six, seven years ago now, uh, six and a half years ago, and then the pec tear is like, the surgery was almost a year to the day. It nice. might even be a year to the day. Wow. Yeah. But actually, this is this is actually not uh, the injury I want to talk about. I want to talk about your back. My back injury, yeah. Because this also is going to segue nicely into stones, stones yeah, yeah, yeah. strength, dinny stones, etc. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Please tell us all about. So the back, the back injury is an interesting one because, I mean, the, the shoulder ones are like really acute injuries. Um, I mean, the, the, the labrum tear was an injury that I was nursing for about nine months and then I got it scanned and then just fixed. And then you rehab and you're good to go. The pec was a very acute injury. I tore it in a tournament and had surgery a couple of weeks later. I mean, I knew straight away that it was torn. Um, the back is a different one. Where so that was that was the... That was a that teams was, event. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I watched yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it was the it was a very weird scenario um, where I think I'd had four matches. I'd had three matches against the two biggest guys in the team, John Thorpe Blank, uh, twice, and against um, Richie Martinez, boogeyman. And then my fourth match was against Gio, and I was thinking oh, I've had these two heavyweights. And now I'm going to get the role with this little guy. Great. <laughs> and a poor God. And I was kind of just moving around. And he's pretty strong for a 60 kilo guy. Or yeah, whatever. very athletic. Um, but he he went to pass guard and I got into a butterfly guard position. And then I went to sweep with this underhook on my left side. And as I went to sweep, I mean, I the problem with the squads event, what I felt was the cause of the injury was very very long periods of sitting around doing nothing get cold getting cold and because of the way like they don't know who's going to be competing next so you have to we would sit in the chair and you just sit there and maybe you know you do that but you you don't want to give too much away so essentially there's zero warm-up wow so i've competed uh I, i was the first I was the first person to compete in the whole event. So um, I competed, 40 minutes sitting down, competed again. Uh, then a 15-minute break where we went and we could warm up. 
And then we went out and maybe like 20 minutes competed and then another 40 minute break. And then I competed again. And I think that warm up get completely cold warm up. And, and I think that just created some tightness. And then when I extended, I also think a combination that, you know, uh, um, hysterical strength, the idea of hysterical strength. So like uh, your body's ability to switch on its- To um, produce force is greater than greater your ability than what you'd to usually it. be able to. So Correct. like a, a mum lifting a car off of the kid. Yes. So like your, the idea is that your nervous system holds back the maximal force that your muscles are able to produce in order to stop you from tearing everything yes. apart. But if you need it, you can generate that force. Like if you're in a life and death situation, you've got to save someone. Do I, I don't think you have hysterical strength when you compete, but I think that your ner nervous system allows you more strength than you'd have in the training room. Yes. So I think a combination of that and the coldness is essentially what it, 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 it was. I, and this is kind of the, the frustrating thing about it. He didn't tear my shoulder. You, you I tore did. your like, own shoulder. So my you're too strong for your own shoulders. Then that's now what this you're is telling how, this us. Is, I joke about this, but <laughs> this is actually what my this is actually what my consultant said, which because I didn't tear the tendon off of the bone. Right, I actually tore the muscle off of the tendon. So it's a rarer injury. Jesus. Yeah, uh, and a more complicated surgery. But hopefully, she recover well, uh, or it's had has recovered pretty well. So yeah, essentially, my arm was stuck in a position, but my pec engaged so much that it ripped itself off yeah so like it literally so i can say that my my pec was so strong it ripped itself off of the tendon which <laughs> sounds cool but it's incredibly painful uh, brutal yeah brutal. so anyway anyway we get back to the back injury so the back injury is um about 10 years old now i was okay. 21 when i did it and i was basically when i when i was training back at the beginning of my when i trained japanese jiu-jitsu i threw a high kick and my back went Mm. And I'm 15 years old and, you know, I go to the doctor, gives me some diazepam. I spend a couple of days in bed. I wake up and it's like it never happened. You know, right. 15 years old, you recover like yeah. a like fucking Wolverine. Growth hormone. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, never thought anything of it. And then I was doing some bent over rows in here and uh, my form went and I felt something go in my back. And, um, and it hurt. And it hurt for a while and I went to the doctor and, and then I, it kind of just started the journey. And for about, for about six months, I'd have bouts of back pain that would come and go and I just have to deal with them. Um, but it would really stop me from training a lot. I still competed a little bit. Um, I won Nagara, I think. I won IBJJF, Euros, Brown Belt, no gi. Wow. So I was competing, but in between that, I'd have some real issues with my back. And I got it scanned and after six months and he goes, oh, you, you know, you, your disc is protruding a little bit. Um, it, it will take itself back in in the next couple of months. I said, bro, it's already been six months. I don't think it's going to take itself back no. in. So I go and see another, um, I go and see another specialist and he does instead of an MRI that just a soft that shows soft tissue, he does a CAT scan that shows bone as well. And it reveals that my vertebrae is cracked. So you broke your back. Yeah. So the, the whole Mike Tyson thing, it's like <laughs> spinal spinal. <laughs> I have broken my back and my back is still broken. Uh, oh, really? it, it won't heal. Yeah. So the crack what? in my back, uh, I'll show you, uh, in fact, what's the key talking? I'm going to, all right. So, cause I, I do remember I'm find so, a cool picture of this. All right. Very good. So here's, here's the thing. I just read it on your social media Yeah. or if we chatted last time we got together and you had mentioned, cause we were talking about Dinny stones and I've been aware of the Dinny stones for a while with these legendary lifting stones. And you had said, that's a scan of my back. Oh mate. It's gnarly, isn't it? That's clear. We're going to get a, we're going to get a picture of this and put it on the Instagram. It's like and a, it's like a clean, clean. That's uh, so clear yeah it's a clean break through the through the vert and so if you look but at tell the me tell me why that doesn't heal or so basically if you look at it imagine that that gap isn't there it still wouldn't it doesn't look even yeah so what the doctor reckons is that um when i was in my teens and my growth plates were still quite soft when i injured my back when i was 15 basically i probably broke both sides oh. and they healed but maybe one side didn't heal really well right so then when i was um it's possible that um, it caused tightness. Mm -hmm. And then when I was doing the rows, that caused the injury that expressed on that. And the, either that's when it broke or it broken earlier, didn't heal. And then that's when, it, when my discs herniated as well. So it's mm -hmm. all connected around the same sort of thing. The break itself 
is not biologically active. That's the interesting thing. So the brake is not causing me any problem. It was the discs around the brake right. that were causing yeah. me problems. So why that will never heal? Because um, the growth plates are, are not soft anymore. Right. So when I, f when I first saw this back specialist and he did this scan, he goes, your back's broken. We can uh, drill a hole through and put a pin into the spine to reconnect it. What? And uh, he said, yeah. And he said, there's a 10% a, a, a chance, a one in 10 chance that it, the, the, the pin won't connect and it will rattle, like it won't um, fuse and it will rattle around. If it <laughs> rattles around, we'll have to fuse your spine. And I go, absolutely no chance. What? I can't take any, if it was 1%, I wouldn't take that chance. Um, How ridiculous. Yeah, because like if, you're, if your spine is fused, then you can't no do jiu-jitsu. Yeah, no you, you can't do that stuff. Mate. So uh, thankfully I didn't do it because when I saw another back specialist a few years later, they did a test where they injected me with a radioactive dye that would show up really effective. And that's when Dan got his mutant strength. <laughs> <laughs> that's when he became the Raspberry <laughs> you, Yeah, that's my origin story. Have you, have you ever done the radioactive dye thing? I haven't actually. So they, 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 they inject you with this radioactive dye that basically it will um, show inflammation, like very clearly on an MRI. Um, so... But they inject it and then they tell you to go away and wait a few hours for it to circle it. And they go, stay away from pregnant women. Because <laughs> <Literally>, you're like, <laughs> literally radioactive. Start glowing like I mean, Homer you know, It probably has not done much good for me. But yeah, you know, I've, I've only had it once. And, um, and, and what it showed was that the break is there, but the dye wasn't going to it. So it wasn't active. Right. So it probably wasn't causing me any harm. I mean, it's connected to the back injury because mm. it probably tightened my back up to the point where the, the disc went, but the disc was the real issue. Oh, yes. Hey, guys. KT here. If you've liked listening to part one of JT chatting with Dan Strauss, tune in to the next episode for part two. And if you'd like some help with your strength and mobility, go to bulletproofforbjj.com. Use the code BJJPODCAST for 20% off your subscription. Cheers.